morning, good morning, and amen, I love it. Good to see you here. Welcome, everybody, and online, too. We're glad that you're with us to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Pastor Bruce. If we've not met before, we're glad to be here in the house of God to celebrate and to give God praise and glory and to enjoy each other's company, too, because we are the body of Christ that God has brought together. And I see others will be coming in as we go forward in our worship service. Make sure that those that come in feel really welcome. And be sure to say hello to them afterwards, too, because we have a fellowship hall down this direction, and we have coffee and goodies and things down there for kids to play with. So stick around and get to know some folks and introduce yourself. So with that, uh, I'd like to start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to hold off for a second. We're going to say hi to each other. Okay, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that we are a living body of Christ, that we are here because you've called us to worship you this morning to grow close together with you and with one another. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit truly fall upon all of us with your glory, that we would truly find in ourselves the wonder of our salvation in Christ Jesus, the humility that comes with it, the desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world around us. Lord God, we're not alone in this. We are together. And with this, Lord God, we thank you for the mission you've given us, and for the fellowship we enjoy so very much with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take just a few minutes. Let's stand up, move around, say hello, introduce yourselves. Enjoy. Oh 
tears bring your addictions come lay them down at the foot of the cross jesus is waiting god so so grateful this morning that we can unburden ourselves by repenting, by laying those sins at the cross. And Lord, we're so grateful, Father, that you have such mercy. And Lord, that in that forgiveness, you have wiped the slate clean. And Father, we are free, free to rejoice in you, free to experience your grace. And uh, Lord God, it's just such a gift, and we're so grateful for it this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Just place 
Heavenly Father, it's a great testament to your grace and your mercy that, Lord, through faith in Christ Jesus, all of our sins have been forgiven. Lord, we don't deserve it. Lord God, we, we fail maybe to consider the gravity of our sin, the breadth and depth of it, how even the good that we do can be twisted just a little bit to be more self-interested and self-serving than truly giving you full glory. Lord, we know we fall short of loving you completely all the time, and we know that we don't love our neighbors all the time as we love ourselves. But we do thank you so very much for the joy that you give us. What a contradiction. On our own, Lord God, we couldn't have that. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, the living presence of Christ with us, Lord God, we thank you that we have that peace that goes beyond understanding. We have that right relationship with you because you give us your righteousness. You declare us free. Past, present, future, Lord God, we are who we are in Christ, and eternal life is your gift to us. And Lord, we owe you everything, every breath we take, everything we do, every thought that goes through our mind, Lord God. We thank you for who you are and how much you love us, how much you shape us and mold us and transform us. And when we see you face to face, we're going to hear amazing words. Well done. That is amazing. And we thank you, God, in all humility that we can keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, we know that on our own we're lost, but with your Holy Spirit in us and through us and the truth of your word, we move forward on your strength and in your grace. For your glory alone, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, the Apostles' Creed will be here on the overhead for us to read aloud. It's a sort of a miniaturized composite over many, many centuries that was developed that hits some of the major highlights of what we believe. I'd like to invite us all to read this aloud together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, the kids, in a moment, we head down the hallway. Um, Gabe just wanted to have a quick word before everybody heads out. There we go. There we go. Um, well, hello. Um, obviously, I'm Gabe, the youth pastor. Um, so kids, uh, high school, middle school, we are going to be heading down, so if you guys want to start heading down. But um, I just wanted to say um, thank you guys so much. Uh, last Sunday, we had, or you guys hosted a baby shower for my very, very pregnant wife, Rachel, um, who is at home getting rest right now because she had a long day at work yesterday. So, um, but we just want to say thank you guys um, for the support you guys have been showing us and um, really just rallying around us, helping us out with expenses and also just helping us to um, just feel loved and to um, show 
what like good godly family is as the church to rally around one another um, in support and especially as this is our first kid so it's going to be a lot on our plates and obviously I got all the the youth kids that I'm kind of overseeing and and shepherding um, but I'm just looking forward to um, being able to share our daughter with you guys and have her be a part of the family here um, so thank you guys um, and also um, if I'm a little bit tired and out of it. Uh, it's because we went bowling last night. It was actually a really fun night. Um, and we had like three games at Milwaukee Bowl. It was an awesome time. But anyways, um, yeah, so I just want to say thank you guys. And I appreciate all the support. Rachel appreciates all the support. As I said, she's not here this morning because she is dead tired and getting some rest. Much needed rest. But thank you, and we love you guys very much. Thank you. Yeah. For those that uh, aren't aware, she's due at the end of this month, so imminent. And then he's going to need all our prayers and support because he has no clue what he's getting into. <laughs> it's fun and tiring. All right. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be reading through the first 11 verses in this wonderful book. Uh, that we know as Romans. It's Paul's letter to the Christian community there in Rome. There's a blend in that church of both Gentile and Jew. The Jews have been kicked out of Rome collectively several times, and now they've come back. And the, I'm just going to give you a little bit of backdrop here. And they've come back, and in the interim, those years they were away, the non-Jewish community, the Gentile community that was the Christian presence there, were doing Sunday school and worship sermons and Bible studies and all the things we might imagine. And when the Jewish community came back, they found out that their leadership roles had been filled by those uh, Gentile Christians that were there, and they were having a hard time reintegrating. And there was a sense of superiority at work that was inherent in the Jewish culture at the time who sort of looked down their nose at the Gentile community at large. And so last week, we looked at the first chapter, included the first chapter, and we looked at 18 to 32, and how Paul was noting that the Gentile community at large, not necessarily the Christian community, but the wider world, were exercising all kinds of sins, very flagrantly suppressing the evidence that God gave the entire population in creation evidence that God exists and the att many attributes of God are evident in creation itself, if one were to ponder this, but they had suppressed the truth and so God's wrath was upon them. And no doubt the Jewish community was applauding wildly, yes, exactly so. Um, they deserve to be disciplined like this and yes, they deserve God's wrath. They shouldn't be suppressing God's truth like this. And there were several examples of their sins in their lives. So that was 18 to 32, and there was no excuse worldwide for that kind of suppression, suppression and denial of God's reality and God's truth. Now, what Paul does at this point is rather surprising, and I don't think that the Jewish Christian community saw it coming, but they were probably nodding their heads and feeling very self-satisfied. Go get them, Paul. We're with you all the way. Yep, that's right. We agree 100%. Look at the things they do. It's just awful. As clear as the day is long, they need to experience God's wrath. If they have trouble, it's on them. Distress in their lives? Sure. The day of wrath is coming, judgment day? Well, they deserve every bit of it. Way to go, Paul. They're cheering him on. That seems to be the, the attitude that underlies what's happening here. Now, Paul 
is not going to leave them in their self-satisfied, judging, condemning attitudes because we're all sinners in need of grace. The Jewish community, though, wrestled with that perspective. And I want to give you a little bit of background on what the Jewish community generally understood about themselves. A couple of things. One is, yes, they knew they were sinners, but they believed that they were immune from wrath. After all, they're God's chosen people. Chosen, in their mind, over time, came to be associated with salvation. God led us out of Egypt. God saves us from his wrath. There you go. So even if I'm a sinner, I'm immune. I've got a get-out-of-jail-free card in my pocket. It's good at all times. I don't need to worry about judgment to come. Everything is taken care of. They knew that God's grace had saved them. They, they knew that they weren't chosen because they were more worthy than another people group. So they knew what grace was from the very beginning. They also knew that they had been given special privileges as having been chosen. So what, would, what was so special about this? Well, a couple things. One is they had received covenants with God. So in fact, we're going to celebrate one of the New, the New Testament covenant here today in communion. They had received these gifts from God, and I'll talk a little bit more about covenants because I think that's important for us to understand more of the backdrop here. And they'd also received from angels, from prophets and stuff, the Word of God, special revelation beyond just what nature had declared. And so that developed over time to be what, what we call today the Old Testament, right? Or the First Testament. That's what they had, and it was a very special gift. What went wrong was their assuming that chosen was synonymous with salvation, freedom from wrath, freedom on judgment day. They, they kind of thought that maybe they would sit back in the corner and watch the rest of us condemned by God's wrath in heaven because we weren't Jewish, and they were okay. In fact, there was a saying at the time in other literature that expressed this idea about their own personal immunity from God's wrath. It was like this, to know God is our righteousness. Just simply knowing God, reading the Old Testament, being chosen people of God, they assumed then they were right with God. Those that don't know God aren't right with God, therefore wrath falls upon them. Do you catch that? I wanted to get that out there before we read the text because I think when we read the verses that Paul wrote, it'll make much more sense given that background as to what's happening. Verse 3, I just want to point this out before we go any further. There's a vital question that Paul asks. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Great question. Do you imagine that you're immune? Do you think that that's relevant only for somebody else and not yourselves? So let's look now at what he says. First of all, not, now we've got the background done, the second point in your outlines, if you want to write it in, is this. Beware presumptions on grace. Beware presumptions on grace. So verses 1 through 5. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? 
Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, it doesn't say, does it, who the you are. It seems rather foggy. But what's interesting was, in chapter 1, it was referencing them. And now, Paul references you. Clearly, there's a different group now that's being addressed. Clearly, the first one was obviously the Gentile community at large. Who could be the alternate group? The Jews. And I'm not able to cover further scriptures this morning, but if you were to go to verse 17, you see that he specifically mentions the Jews. And the whole context of Romans is trying to integrate the Jewish Christian community with the Gentile Christian community because we're all one in Christ Jesus. There's no special elitism in the church. And so I think that tells us what the context is, that the you here, even though it's in the singular, is sort of a... Uh, a picture of those who would judge others feeling superior. Therefore, I am better off than you are. I am more right with God because I am better morally than you are. And that's the, the dilemma that they're in. The easiest thing to do is to read last Sunday's sermon over again and to say to yourself, well, I don't do those things. Therefore, they're worse than I am. And that's seemingly what was happening. And so Paul wants to make sure that he doesn't leave us with that impression. He then hits another group who think they're better morally, inherently, than others. And that can speak to all of us, couldn't it? How many of us feel a little critical of others' behavior and we feel better about ourselves? I am a better driver than most people I've met on the road. How about you? That seems to be my, my salient point, but I, I think that one resonates with a lot of people right? There are other things we do as well to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We do it. And this is what Paul is warning us about, is to be a little bit more humble. In fact, be humble. And we'll get to that in a minute. So there's a lot in this that we could tangentially uh, head off into the weeds, so to speak. What I try and do with Romans, and I'm intent on doing this, is to make sure we know what Paul's points are in the context that he's given it, and then find its application, and not just get lost in uh, major sub-themes all around the edges. So let's look at what he's doing. First of all, let's find out how come the Jews are mistaken about their idea that having been chosen, they're automatically immune from God's wrath, that they are saved automatically by birth, by their ethnicity, by their belonging in this group. And I think as well, they felt pretty righteous about their religious behaviors or their observances. But as we'll see, you can be a very religious person and actually suppress the truth of God and suppress God's love in being more of a legalist. But sometimes we turn to legalistic attitudes or behaviors because then it allows us to compare ourselves to others. And again, that's what Paul says we must not do. Be careful not to do that. Discernment is one thing. To be able to call a sin a sin is a good thing. It is a holy thing. It is what the Bible would ask us to do. But first, it starts with us. 
and we do it with humility and not with condemnation and self-righteousness. Let's look what he did. Let's look at the covenants in the Bible. There are eight covenants in the Bible. Um, Most of them are in the Old Testament, of course. And amongst those, there are two that are conditional, which means that God initiates the covenant. God sets the terms of the covenant. He doesn't negotiate. God starts it, sets the details, and maintains the details. If it's a conditional covenant, it's also reliant upon our response. If it's unconditional, then God maintains it no matter what we do. So let's look at those. There are two that are conditional, and there are eight total. Two conditional ones. God does his part whether we fail at ours or not. And if we fail, then that covenant is lost. First one's a covenant of works. God made a covenant of works. That's what they're calling it. Uh, Not me, but the scholars. And it's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Did you need to be saved by grace in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? No, because there was no sin, right? What was the requirement in the Garden of Eden? Do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So it was a covenant of works, it's called. And that's not a scary thing because there was no sin. That's a good thing. Here's what you should be doing, and that's just that one thing you shouldn't do. So it was a works-oriented behavioral thing. That's how it started. And, of course, we know that Adam and Eve sinned. That covenant was lost by Genesis 3. Then the second one that's conditional is the Mosaic law. And uh, that's the law, the blessings and the curses. You can read about those where God says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. And if you do this, then I cannot bless you. You'll be cursed. And so you get these contrasting uh, sides. And God is clearly saying, I will bless you if. And that's a conditional covenant. Now, the Jews suppressed the truth that no one could fulfill the Mosaic law. Could they really love God fully? Could they really love their neighbor completely? And and then add up all the other things that are part of the uh, ethnically, religiously, cultural laws, like... uh, circumcision and stuff like that, that they could do. But there were other things that maybe they didn't always do right. And so the question there is, it should have put them on their knees, but it didn't. Why not? Again, they thought they were immune from wrath. They had Moses, that's enough. They knew what they were to do, and they were counting on the fact that they could do it. And they were suppressing the truth that really nobody could do it, which should have driven them back to grace. God, I need your salvation. I need you to save me. I cannot fulfill the covenant of Moses, which has a conditional clause. If you don't, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I cannot bless you. And that they suppressed in thinking that they could achieve it. Although there was, I think, a spiritual anxiety definitely in the time of Christ. Remember when they asked Jesus, what works does God require for us to be saved? What do we have to do There was a rumor that maybe just one, if you could do it completely, would be enough. And that's when Jesus gave the best reply ever, believe in the one he sent. That's the answer they needed all throughout, from Genesis 3 on, the promise of the Messiah, relying on God's grace to save them. Then there are six unconditional covenants in the Bible. The first one is the Adamic covenant, so-called. And it's about the Adam and Eve thing in Genesis 3. And what did God promise? That a seed of Eve would be the Savior 
that would stomp on the head of the serpent and destroy that, that evil, and they could be saved. And so there was a Savior that God promised them that they longed for, and they didn't see it in their lifetime. In fact, we know, reading Scripture, that that turned out to be Jesus. And that's what that covenant is all about, the Adamic one. And then the second one is the Noatic. They call it Noah. What's that in the sky when the rain is falling and the sun is out and it shines through the rainfall? A rainbow, right? And that's God's promise. He'll never flood the whole earth again. And that God maintains despite global warming and whatever all else we, we cause or we think we cause. So this is a promise from God. I remember in Alaska one time we had a tsunami warn, warning and school was let out early and Mary came home from school and that's my little girl and she was scared, and she said, Dad, Mom, I thought God promised not to flood the whole world again. And it's going to be okay. This is an unconditional covenantal promise of God who initiated it, set the terms, and maintains them. He will never flood the earth again. Okay, whew, relief, poor thing. But it's good. It's a promise from God. Then third is the Abrahamic covenant where God promised him that there be many people in that family of faith and that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. Now, the Jews at the time figured that if they're literally descendants of Abraham, that they were in that covenant and therefore saved. And this is where things went sideways. Paul would write in Galatians these words, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. He didn't say by lineage or by ethnic identity. He said those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel, the good news, in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's a promise. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see what he's done? That covenant that they counted on wasn't proper in their minds. They had misunderstood that it was by faith, not by ethnic identity. This is important, and Paul makes that point. The fourth one is the land, the promise of land, and all the enemies removed. And ultimately, I think that's the new heaven, heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all that language in the Bible. Um, I think that is the fulfillment of the covenant of the land, and it's yet to come in its completion. The fifth one is Davidic. There would always be an heir of David on the throne forever and ever, and we know in the scriptures that that turns out to be, again, Jesus. Right? So that's an unconditional one. But again, in all of the ones that I've mentioned, there is no promise of salvation to anyone, just the other promises that are unconditional that God has given his people, and they're privileged to know it. Then comes an interesting one. There is a sixth unconditional covenant, and it has to do with what we're going to celebrate here this morning. It's in the New Testament, and Jesus initiated it. You know what he said it was? The new covenant. And it is the only covenant that assures us of our salvation, and it's intimately tied to Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting, of all of them? He's the one that brings it all together with what he's done for us in the good news. And we'll hear more about that when we stand at the table. 
So not a one of the Old Testament covenants was a guarantee of their salvation. It guaranteed other things, but not that. They were saved by faith from first to last. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, 16 and 17, faith, that's it, key. That means trust, that good news that we've been given through Christ. And you'll get back to that more and more and more as we go along in, in Romans, and we see it throughout the Bible that this is the key piece. God chose his people to be righteous in Christ. Without Christ, they had no assurance of salvation. They had no assurance that they were right with God. They just presumed on it. So the Gentiles were suppressing what creation said about God, and the Jewish community widely was suppressing the truth of the gospel, assuming they didn't really need it because they were guaranteed immunity. And so Paul is saying, you might look down your nose at how they're behaving in the suppression of the truth over here and saying, boy, look at those terrible people. You're right, Paul, go get them. And fail to realize that they were taking grace for granted. They didn't really appreciate their sin. They didn't appreciate God's holiness and that it applied to them. Only other people. And that was a mistake they made. Look at Matthew 3, 9, what Jesus says. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, you're counting on your lineage, and he says it counts for nothing. A rock could be a child of Abraham if God wanted him to be. Look at John 5. But do not think I will accuse you before the father. Your accuser is Moses of whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And he's saying, you think you're all religious, and you think you've got your ducks in a row, and you think you've got it made, but you've suppressed the truth that you know. Go back and read Moses, he says, and you'll see that he's talking about me. So we've got Gentile suppression and Jewish suppression. And we all need the same thing, Jesus. And he's bringing the church together and he's reaching out to the wider world with the good news of Christ. The only unconditional covenant that's tied to our salvation is the new covenant of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't true, then we don't need Jesus. We just need to cling to a different covenant. And what does the world do? We're the only belief on the planet that says we're saved by God's grace through faith. All the other religious perspectives are works and achievements and benchmarks in your life. Live good, do good, get what you deserve. Something like this is kind of karma-related. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Many, many, Hinduism, Buddhism, even if they don't believe in God, it's still tied to behavior and works and achievements somehow. It's on us. And yet, if you know your Bible and you know what God is saying and you see in creation and you see in the special revelation of Scripture, you realize that without Christ, we're lost. And none of us can brag and none of us can say we're better and none of us can say we've achieved a level of satisfaction with God that others haven't achieved. Or maybe we think to ourselves that we're better than another person inherently, and that would be wrong. 
We're all sinners, saved by grace. And we're at different parts of our lives. I'm not the teenager I once was. The things I didn't know, the things I wanted to do that I shouldn't have done, and the things I should have done that I didn't do, that was of its own teenage flavor. And now I'm at this point in my life where I still could say the same, but there are different things perhaps that I'm doing right or things that are on my mind, in my heart. I'm a work in progress. If you meet a sinless pastor, let me know. If you meet a sinless person, let me know. I have met a few people who claimed to be sinless. And I find that just, well, as the British would say, barking mad. <laughs> because there's no truth in that. This side of heaven, we live in grace. And I think it's so important that we keep that in mind. And we'll see there's a great application for it. Paul's point is that, yes, the Gentiles have no excuse. There is no excuse. They can't stand before God in heaven and say, I didn't know. God will respond, oh, yes, you did. You chose to suppress it. Over here, the Jewish community thinks that they don't need an excuse. And Paul says, oh, yes, you do. There is no excuse. You've suppressed the truth, both, of, both parties. And again, it goes back to grace. It goes back to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. For we must all, Jew and Gentile alike, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, no exceptions. Everybody, when we see God face to face, will face judgment. And that creates a problem in many people's minds. Because judgment, usually we associate with condemnation. So if Christians have to face the judgment of God, what kind of pops to the top of our thought? Well, I'm saved by Jesus in the cross, so why would I be condemned by God in a judgment? Well, that's to misunderstand judgment. When you're in sports and you do a good job, how does the, how does the coach respond? He judges your work and he says, good job, great basket, nice pass, good run, whatever it is, there's praise. Jesus Christ removes our sins, so when we do stand in judgment day, are there any bad things left to judge? That's the point. There isn't. This is the saving work of Jesus. Our defense attorney, you could say, in the court of law before God, who stands up and says, he's innocent. I paid for that person's sins. They are right. I declare them to be right. If you want to read an Old Testament example, because maybe you think, that's a New Testament thing. Back in the old days, it was all about works, and God just nails them. Read Zechariah. And read about how Joshua stands before God dressed in filthy rags. And Satan, one of the four times Satan shows up in the Old Testament, Satan is there to accuse Joshua, who probably is a representative of the entire people of Israel. He stands there to accuse Joshua of sin before the judge. And Joshua's dressed in filthy rags. He's dirty. He can't even defend himself. He's dirty. He's He's, he's covered in sin. It's as obvious. He's, if there was no way out, he'd be condemned. Instead, 
God stops the trial, says, take those dirty rags off of him and put clean robes upon him and put a turban on his head. And if you're a priest in that day and you had a turban on your head, it would add a plaque on it. And on the plaque, it would have said, holy to the Lord. How was Joshua saved? He was saved by grace, not by works, lest anybody could boast. It's in the Old Testament, too. It's not a new, huh, that pops up in the New Testament and surprised them. It's a continuity of thought. Always from Genesis 3, clear through to the end, everybody is a sinner who needs grace, no matter who you are. So let's look at the application. We aren't Jews, so some people might say, well, I'm not Jewish, so how does this apply to me? Principles are always the thing you want to look for. What is it that underlies what Paul is saying that applies universally across the board? And there are many here. Uh, one that comes to mind is, keep in mind how God sees everyone, including yourself. Keep in mind how God sees everybody, including yourself. God loves the whole world, right? What's our attitude? Are we better? Do we condemn others when we don't want to deal with our own stuff? Yes, we should discern, and no, we can't just be quiet and let sin roll by idly and, and say, well, I'm a sinner, so who am I to say? We're supposed to speak up, but only for the Lord and not for our own self-righteousness or self-interest or selfishness or some kind of an aggressive campaign to elevate myself. We need to speak the truth in love. And it always starts first with myself. How am I doing? I think that's why we can speak gently and respectfully because we're not saying I'm superior. We're saying, look, we're in this together. Let's, let's let the water level rise and flow at all boats. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's trust the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, later on, Paul wrote this. The, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely. We sang that song, didn't we? Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What is it, the old saying, we're beggars showing another beggar where to find bread? Right? That's a humble ministry and a service, and I think we need to live reliant on who we really are as God sees us. If you're a believer in Christ, he sees you as righteous, and we want to live into that. No excuses. We want to live into that. But we also live humble lives, don't we? Because we're saved by grace. The minute we think we don't need grace anymore, that we have achieved some superior plane, and we find ourselves critical of others and condemning others and really speaking down about others, which we can all fall prey to, then we have taken our eyes off grace and we're presuming on it. And I don't want to ever forget that I'm always eternally grateful and in continuity with God's grace. That is a great attitude to keep. So that brings us to the second one I thought of in this. Live a repentant and humble life in Christ Jesus. That should be our aim. Now remember, the Jewish community in the church is probably feeling a little superior to the Gentile Christian community, and Paul is saying, don't feel that way. Don't even think it's true. It's suppressing the truth. You all need Jesus. You're all sinners. So he's bringing it together. And to live a repentant life 
Can I explain that for a second? I've known many people that have struggled with a sin in their life. Maybe it's an addiction or something like that. We might label it so, okay? The more they think about what they don't want to do, the more they're thinking about what they don't want to do. Seems stupid, but it's a spiral that takes you down because you will beat yourself silly trying to overcome something that you need the Holy Spirit's help for. And even a community of supportive individuals who can pray for you, encourage you, hold you accountable, whatever it is. Instead, when you live a repentant life, you're not staring at the problem and trying to turn away. That's, that's your effort, and that's good. You want to turn away from sin, but that's not all repentance is. It's not turning away from sin, and that's all there is to it. Because then what are you looking at? You end up being a revolving door. You keep going around in circles. What you want to do in repentance is look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to the Lord. And so if you want to find success and freedom, don't just dwell on what you don't want to do. I just got to stop, you know, that kind of thing. You're ultimately wrestling in the wrong direction. Turn your back on it. And look at Jesus and keep your eyes on Jesus and ask for God's help in the Holy Spirit to help you move forward. And I think you'll discover there's freedom that direction. It's an unending struggle if this is the issue and you keep trying to turn away. Go all the way around and keep your eyes in that direction. That is a life of repentance. It's a humble life because you know what you've just turned your back on. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Lead me not into temptation. It's an admittance that we're weak. I need you, God. That's a life of repentance. Deliver me from the evil one. It's an adjective, evil. We know we're talking about the devil. Deliver me from the evil one. I need help. I'm tempted, and sometimes I fall. I'm weak. I get it. God, help. This is a life of repentance, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And that's something I think that keeps me humble. When I've got my head on straight and my heart in the right place, I realize, am I keeping my eyes on Jesus or am I looking at me? Is it on me or is it on Jesus? Am I the answer to my problems? Can I overcome my sinful temptations on my own? Or, or do I look to Christ and I say, there's my answer. There's a lot there I could unpack, but it's good. Try it and see if that doesn't make a wonderful difference in your walk with Jesus. We all know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Not on what we think it is and not what we'd like to imagine it is and not based on what I think about myself compared to somebody else. The standard of justice and just behavior and judgment is God. How does God see this? And again, it goes back to living a life of humble repentance as we keep our eyes on Jesus. And don't ever lose sight of grace. There's no room for bragging or boasting. When I find myself critical, I was just the other day, I was crabbing about somebody. Have you ever crabbed about somebody? I've crabbed. I have. I have crabbed. And I've said, grumpity, grump, grump, grump. And the other day, I said to Jenny, I shouldn't do this. Crab, 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 crab. In other words, I blew it. I know what I just said. But I find it really difficult to live like that all the time. And it just reminds me, when I catch myself out, I need to stop. And I need to step back and say, oh, Lord, 
I thank you for grace. Help me to be salt and light and not a condemning judge. I think, you know, it's okay to be discerning. If somebody's sinning and you love them, you don't just excuse yourself like, well, I'm a sinner, I can't say anything. No, you, you apply the word of God and let God's Holy Spirit do the inner work in them. Don't, don't miss that, but at the same time, don't miss yourself first. It's a really important piece. And then praise the Lord for his kindness. Has he been kind to you? You know what the word kindness means? It's Paul, Paul's the only one that uses it. It means the entire breadth and scope of God's good news. Even clear to eternal life, kindness encompasses a swath of gifts from God. And he says we can all appreciate it and be thankful for it. And I think it's part of our lives that we be thankful people. Thank you, God, for forgiving me my sins. Thank you, God, for the church, the body, my friends, my compadres in ministry, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are there for the common good. Thank you, God, for these wonderful things you've given us. That's so important. We don't thank God enough, I think. I, I don't either. I, need to, I think I could thank God more than I do, although I think I'm a thankful person, but I really want to consciously thank God more. When I go to bed at night, I've been thinking a lot about this. I jump right into, dear God, be with so-and-so and help so-and-so and do this. I need to spend more time in how's the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Praise, thanks, glory to God, acknowledgement. I could do a little bit more of that. How about you? I think that's something I can work on, and I think perhaps you could too. And then I ran across a word that just uh, brought me back. I was a nurse for 10 years, and it brought me back to uh, being in the ICU working. My specialty was hearts. That was my forte, I guess you could say, over those years. And I ran across the word that brought me back to that day, and that was the word stubbornness. It wasn't that I was stubborn or that my patients were stubborn. What caught my eye was the Greek, because the Greek word for stubborn is where we get the word sclerosis, arterial sclerosis, right? The hardening of the arteries, we might say. Stubborn hearts have sclerotic issues. They're not healthy. And it's even interesting that it's associated with an unrepentant heart. They're clogged up. They're hard. And I thought, wow, what a great word for stubborn. You're being really sclerotic right now. Don't be hard like that. It's deadly. It causes symptoms that aren't good. You'll suffer for it. And I think that's the word that Paul chose to word, use on purpose to help us realize and ask ourselves, is my heart stubborn? I don't want to be humble. I don't want to give up judging other people so I feel better about myself or condemning them when I haven't looked at my own sin in the, clearly in the eye and said, Lord, help me first. That's a really great place to be, I think, humility, don't you? And then to speak the truth in love without con condemnation. People need hope. They need to know that there's a way forward. They need to know that God loves them. We're not going to be soft on sin. We're not going to say, hey, it's fine. Cool. We've, at our church, we decided to just take it easy and relax. No, it, we want to be sincere. We want the truth of God to be known and applied and understood. Yes, but realize we're not perfect. What did I, tell, I just told a couple the other day, if you want to find the perfect church, don't go there. You'll wreck it. 
right? It's right. We're in this together. And you know what brings us together? The gospel of Jesus. That's what brings us together. The good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look on. Let's keep going. We've got to move along. God judges everyone equally is the third one. God judges everyone, you, me, Billy Graham, everybody you can think of, equally. 6 through 11. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And I'll bet the Jewish community gasped in surprise. When you hear about the Jew first and Gentile second, don't you, if you've been in the Bible for a while or been in church, don't you imagine that the Jew first, Gentile second has to do with evangelism? Start in Jerusalem, you know, and then Samaria, and then you just work your way out to the rest of the world. That they're chosen, they were first to be chosen, so they kind of get a priority. That's where it starts. And you never think of it in terms of judgment. I didn't. This is one of the rare instances where when it talks about God's wrath, it's applied to the Jews first. And I think the Jews thought it would be applied to the Gentiles first, and they had a pass. And Paul says, no, it starts with you. You are privileged to know more than they have known, and you're held accountable for it. You are first. Quite a, quite a turnaround in perspective. There are three parts to this. It's called a chiasm. You may not know what a chiasm is. It's something that I didn't know until I went to seminary necessarily. But the structure of what Paul is writing is like an X, where the first and the last verses go together. The second and the fifth verse go together, and then the, the middle verses, three and four, they go together too. So I'm going to do that, and I'm going to start in the middle and then work our way out so you know what I'm doing, Okay. So first of all, if we start in the middle, God's wrath awaits those who reject the truth. That's at the very center of what he's saying. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In other words, self-confidence, religious righteousness, go through the motions, living an outwardly pious life, controlling our tongue, behaving, tithing, missional work, all that stuff is stuff. Remember when the judgment day comes and people come before Jesus in the Gospels and there's this account where people say, but Lord, we did this and we did that and we did this and we did that in your name. And you know what Jesus said? I never knew you. There was no relationship. They were counting on their works that they assumed would make them immune from wrath and they didn't need grace and they didn't need Jesus and they were doing stuff in Jesus' name because they had religion, they had behaviors, they had works. They'd learned how to behave like a Christian, and they came to church for good moral instructions, but they didn't have faith in the gospel of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, I don't know who you are. Those are sobering words, and I think that's what he's warning them against. And sometimes they can be so 
religiously minded, they suppress the truth of God. How many of you know the word Corbin? And I don't mean Corbin Institute in that. There's a phrase that the people would use called Corbin, and it worked like this, and we just read it in one of our Bible studies this last week or two. If my mom came to me and said, Bruce, I need to borrow $3,000, I can get out of it. You know how? All I'd have to say is Corbin. You know what Corbin does? It gives that $3,000 to God. Mom, I can't give it to you. I've given it to God. But I'm not obligated to give it to God. I can hang on to it. But I'm not giving it to her. Now, is that love? Have I violated God's heart and God's purpose? Yes. And that's what they did in some cases. In fact, Jesus talks about it. How about another one? Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. Horror of horrors that he would heal anybody on the Sabbath day of rest. But then later on he says, but don't you pull your donkey out of the ditch on the Sabbath rather than lose it? Well, yeah. So what they're doing is they've got all these weird religious rules and regulations, but they have lost sight of God and God's intention and God's heart and what it really means to love God and love our neighbor. And this is the problem that any one of us can get lost in. Rules and regulations, legalisms, and stuff like that. And, and God says, that's not going to save you. We're saved by grace. We want to do the right thing, but we're not saved by those same good things. And then also then as we expand out, now we're going to look at verses 7 and 10. They go together. People who are good will receive eternal life. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now you might say then, is this telling us that we can be saved by what we do? Because often it's pers you know, you're persistent in doing good. What is the definition of good? God. God is the definition of good. So you've got to be as good as God. Do we all fall short? Yes. So what's the ultimate aim then? It's still driving, as we'll see in the wider context, he's driving us to come to Christ. That's how we become good and our sins can be forgiven is by the fact that God's grace saves us and enables us to move forward. There's a word that's out uh, in Calvinism anyway. It's called total depravity. Now, total depravity is just trying to describe our sinful nature. It doesn't mean we're totally depraved, like there is nothing even remotely good about us. We are as the wickedest worms on the planet. That is not what it says. Total depravity means even the very best thing that you can do is somewhat twisted by self-interest. It doesn't really give full glory to God there's something in it that we want to have attention for. We want people to notice. We, I want to feel good about myself. I want to get a reward. I want to get a tax deduction. I want to get a medal, whatever it is. I want to get a better position. I want to be thought of better. I want to hear people applaud, whatever it is. There's just this little hint of me and not just all about God. And that's what it means, total depravity. And to know that, again, it brings us back to humility. I'm a work in progress. Thank you, God, you never give up on me. It's a good, a good place to be. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul would say later on. 
So how do we get out of that? I can't do good, therefore I'm sunk. Well, thank God we've got Jesus. That's the key piece that brings us all together in Christ. And then the outermost verses, 6 and 11, go together, and it says this, God will give to each person according to what he's done, for God does not show favoritism. Favoritism is a really neat word. It it says so much, if you look at its original meaning in, in the Greek, it means receiving the face. Receiving the face. If somebody came before the judge dressed in gorgeous clothing, expensive suits and dresses, been to the manicure, pedicure crowd, makeup, whatever, hairstyles, everything's perfect. They look so good. It makes a good impression, right? Don't we want to make a good impression? And we want to impress, like a job interview. You want to impress. Then somebody else comes in, and they look pretty shabby. They've been living on the streets. Their hair's a mess. They smell. Their clothing's bad. They do not make a good impression, The outcome could be favorable for the one that gives a good impression and not favorable for the one who doesn't. Paul's point is, God does not look at the outside. He he does not get fooled into thinking that our worth is tied to our appearances or our list of accomplishments. He shows no favoritism. He doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inside. And that's, thank God again, for grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 3 then goes on to say there's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is Paul's point. That's his main point at this stage in the book of Romans. So how can we apply it? Well, first of all, let's go back and just say, hey, have I examined my life lately? How am I doing? What does God think and how does God see me? Selfish ambition, self-centered, selfish, self-assurance of my salvation because, well, after all, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Therefore, I must be okay. But again, that would suppress the truth, right? Am I relying on God's grace through faith in Christ alone to save me? Am I really reliant on God's grace through faith in Christ to save me and make me right with Him? Or do I have doubts that I need to do something to save myself? Do you want to, do you still feel, put it this way, that you need to have a checklist of accomplishments? So that when you get to heaven, you can pull that out of your pocket and say, look what I did, God. Surely you must like me better now. And that's to say, I don't need grace. I need Jesus, yes, but I also am really counting on me. There's a real difference. And again, it goes back to humility, which means I trust God to do far more than I could ever do on my own. God, thank you for saving me. It's so critical. Mary, my daughter, our daughter, once asked me, she, you know, with Taiwan and, and the threat of war within four years is what the CIA is saying. There's stuff going on in Ukraine. The world's a mixed up mess. I heard citrus prices are going to take another jump here pretty soon. Inflation's going on. People are having trouble. There's all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, just watch the news and you'll go to bed happy, right? It's tough. And my daughter, Mary, is raising three boys. And, you know, there's this kind of rumor thing that when a lot of boys are born, there's a war coming within a certain generation. And, and so you may not have heard that, but it's kind of this sort of rumory thing. I think it's myth, but it could be. Who knows? God knows what the future brings. But Mary had a great question. She said, Dad, how can I keep my sons safe? Now, what would you say? 
That's a good question, isn't it? And it was sincere and heartfelt. She really cared. And I said, Mary, the only way you're going to keep your kids safe is if they know and believe Jesus. That is it. I can't promise you anything more than that. The only assurance of our salvation, the only assurance of eternal life, the only means to give you joy through the ups and downs of life is Jesus and Jesus alone. And I can't think of anything else, can you? What can I do to keep my kids safe? That's it. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Not because I'm the answer, but I do believe that by God's grace, that I trust Jesus Christ, that when he died on the cross, my sins were laid upon him because he willingly took my sins upon himself. That sets me free to love. And later on in Romans 8, we'll see how it applies because then people might say, well, well, then why would you bother doing anything good if you're automatically saved? I love Romans 8.1 because I get the Scottish thing going what, should we go on sinning so that grace can increase? Great Scott, no. Read it for yourself. That's exactly what he said. Just kidding. But that's what he meant. Thank God for grace. And so I think the poignant mark in that passage is there's not a one of us who can say we're more right with God than another except that we're all one in Christ Jesus. That we can boast about. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And as we come to the expression of the new covenant that was established by Christ, on that up, in that upper room, on that Seder service, that moment of Passover, in the midst of the meal, Christ, after giving thanks to the Father, took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this, and this is the important part, is the new covenant. Mosaic is done. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic covenant with his own life and death and resurrection, right? So now we have a new covenant. He says, the new covenant Sealed in my blood, in other words, a guaranteed, for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. What does the new covenant bring? Forgiveness of sins. That when we see the Lord face to face, all of our sins are forgiven. And how are we judged by works? <laughs> Only the good works remain. Thank you, God, for grace. I just want to stop at this point, and let us pray. Uh, if God has placed something on your heart, you want to receive forgiveness of sins for the first time, maybe you finally see the difference between grace and works, to say, I do trust you completely. You can share that with God. If you're already a believer in Christ, uh, thank you. If you're struggling with sin, then let God know that, and then, like I said, repent and keep your eyes on Jesus, and ask for the Holy Spirit to help, and 
Also, confess your sins to one another. Find somebody you really trust and let them know, and they'll pray for you if they got the right heart about it, right, with gentleness and respect and love, and they want the best for you. And I'm sure they have something they can share with you in return. Not a one of us is perfect. Thank God for Jesus. So I'm going to stop now. We're going to take a moment and pray, set our hearts right with God, whatever it is that's on your mind. Heavenly Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you the Holy Spirit lives within us, a holy place you've made us. And that is very humbling because we know we're not. That's a gift. It's grace. And it's all through the cross of Christ, his death, his resurrection, that we have eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins that you have declared us righteous. And Lord God, we thank you that you discipline those you love, and we, we know that you love us so very, very much that you don't leave us in our sins to be self-satisfied. But God, we pray that we would be unsatisfied with sins in our life, that you would help us with your power, your authority, to transform us, Lord, we ask, that in our weaknesses you would make us strong, that we would rely on your grace and not just ourselves. Lord, we know we're called to take the right steps, to do the right thing, to do the good thing. And we want to honor your name with our lives. When we fall short, thank you that you lift us up. Thank you that you are our Abba and we are your children and that you have the best plans ahead for us. Lord, as we come to your table, we thank you for the new covenant the covenant of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the assurance of our salvation. Thank you so very much. May our lives give you praise and glory. May the world see you magnified in us. And may we be your humble people, filled with love and the good news of Jesus Christ to share with the world around us. We come because we can by your grace. Come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we've got a little bit of uh, gluten-free bread here for those that prefer that. And then there's cups on either end here, and then there's bread beyond that. What we do is we take the cup, we eat the bread, we drink the, the cup of the new covenant, and then we place it in the receptacles on either side. We just come down two lines and go both directions, and you don't have to come up. It's, if you believe in Jesus, though, you're all welcome. You don't have to be a Presbyterian. You don't have to be a member of any church. You don't have to have known Jesus for as long as I have. You might have just met Jesus this morning. Hey, that'd be cool. You're all invited. Uh, so come as you're ready. This is the Lord's table, and he, the Lord, invites you to come. Do come. There's
There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. Where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing
you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all of God's lovely people could say, Amen. God bless you. Come on down to the fellowship hall. Enjoy each other's company. Have some goodies. God bless you. Have a wonderful week with the Lord.